Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support some of the inspiring leaders that you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I talked with Melissa Franzen, small business owner, mom, Puerto Rico native, and the assistant minority leader in the Minnesota State Senate. We talked about what it was like to be in Minnesota after George Floyd's murder and when the guilty verdict was handed down as well as her work in the legislature to pass meaningful police reform and to address systemic gaps in systems like childcare as we recover from COVID. We also talked about why Minnesota is a swing state, ranked choice voting, what it will take to overcome partisan divisions, and why selling Girl Scout cookies is a great training to run for public office. Melissa Franzen, welcome to an honorable profession. Thanks for having me. So great to see you. Talking to you here from your great state of Minnesota, I just want to start with obviously the big news in the last couple of weeks with the Derek Chauvin verdict and the murder of George Floyd. Of course, the whole country was watching, probably the whole world, and so many of us were worried about whether justice would be served in, in this in this case. And I'm just kind of curious to start with how it felt to be on the ground in the state, both leading up to the trial, you know, during the trial, and, and then when the verdict came in. Well, I would say having had on top of layering this COVID on top of everything else, it's been a very challenging year for Minnesota and for the rest of the country, but this is ground zero of of where we talk about the intersection of race and poverty and race and policing. And uh, it's been quite the year and who knew that, uh, you know, Memorial Day weekend, we were gonna have such a tragic news and also amplified by social media and a video. It was really a call for justice in a very erupted all over the state and also the country. And and to be in in, in that limelight, if you will, uh, not in a particularly positive way, was very, not only moving, but also um, we felt the moment that was upon us. And and I'm originally from Puerto Rico, so I'm not from Minnesota originally. And having been here most of my adult life and and having this experience being here, it was almost like surreal. And then as as a lawyer as well, uh, now understanding uh, the criminal justice system as well, um, having that background and seeing how it all played out and and then pushing for for legislative uh, action. And now obviously with the verdict, it, it was very surreal. I think that is the the way I would describe it personally, I, I know many of the players involved, um, like our attorney general, Keith Ellison, he's a, a friend. And, and I, I, I know some of the lawyers that worked on his team on the prosecution side. And I wasn't able to see every detail of the trial. We're in the middle of legislative session here in Minnesota, but we were certainly following as much as possible with the 
updates. And when the verdict did come, I think we were all ready, ready for the, whether it be positive or negative, we were just ready for the moment. As the state, we were ready for eruption of potential protest and not necessarily in a positive way. And we were also ready to embrace a verdict. It, and when I heard the verdict live, I, 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 I was numb. <laughs> I was numb. I didn't, I wasn't necessarily excited. And a lot of people that I've talked to weren't either. It was just a relief that it actually came out to be the way it did. But I think a lot of people didn't expect it to yeah. because it, it hasn't for so many people and so many black people and, and, and so many other victims of police violence. Yeah. And I think I so agree with you. And I think that's what's so heartbreaking and telling about where we are as a country that we were all braced for a verdict to come back not guilty when there was so much clear evidence, right? You know, and you just knowing that the system had failed in other cases, I think is, you know, just part of the whole package that we're dealing with, right? This this kind of having to go back and figure out how we make this different going forward. And so you pointed out that we were really we're approaching the one year anniversary of this, uh, of the of the of the murder. And I know from the get-go after this happened, you've been a leader in your state um, on looking at police reform from a legislative point of view. You've been working with the uh, People of Color and Indigenous Caucus in particular on this. So tell us a little bit about some of the specific reforms you've been pushing for. And and as you head into the end of your legislative session here, what's the prospect for um, for getting some of those passed? Sure. And, and I would also add, within this same year, we've also had another killing uh, of a, a young Black man, Dante Wright, who's just shy of 19 years old and, and was also killed by a, a traffic stop gone gone bad. So it, it actually amplified what we had already, the scar just got even bigger and, and deeper. And what we try to do as soon as we heard what happened and saw what happened with uh, the killing and murder of George Floyd and the People of Color Indigenous Caucus, which is the House and the Senate, we're starting to get a critical mass of people of color. So it's uh, in Minnesota, we have a, a very diverse population, Hmong, Somali, uh, Latino, Black, and Native. And we all just work together to make sure that our voices are represented because the system is really um, not meant for people like us, right? It, it was founded for white males. And in fact, our, our Capitol building didn't have restrooms for women for the longest time because they weren't expecting to have women legislators. So now we have people of color and women and young people in the legislative ranks. And we're demanding change of how we have approached these systems. And if we go to talk about policing, it's it's been founded on, uh, on, on very uh, racial undertones and uh, understanding that. And, and on a sidebar, I also, my, my previous career before coming into politics, I, and in corporate, I was, uh, I worked for a, a little bit in the public defender's office in Hennepin County, which is a county where, this is all playing out, which Minneapolis is part of. So I not only have read so many police reports and, and also tried to, to defend the indigent in Minnesota, uh, it, it also gave that perspective. So coming to it, to the legislative front, we knew that there were, there were reforms that needed to be done. And it was just, this was the moment to push those forward. We have the only divided legislature in the country. So Minnesota has the Senate where I sit is controlled by the Republicans. I'm in the minority party and the Democrats, and then the House is controlled by the Democrats and the governor is Democrat. So that on itself made it really difficult to move things forward in a very deep way. But we were able to make some movements because the moment was such that the Republicans and the leadership understood that 
we we needed to do something. And anyone who saw that video, I've only watched it once. I don't think I want to ever watch it again. You understood that something had to be done. So we we move forward with a, a ban of chokeholds. We move forward with, uh, and this was all bipartisan, obviously. And we move forward to some reforms of how to have uh, officers accountable for intervening in, in, in when someone is, is, is exceeding their power and the duty to intercede. Uh, we move forward to some sweeping reforms that in the, right now, they don't seem like they worked because we had uh, another killing within the year. So we, we knew that we left a lot on the table and we were expecting to take some of those up this legislative session, but it is a budget year. And those priorities for for the people of color indigenous caucus were kind of put on the sidebar and on on wait and see maybe next year, uh, because we did pass some comprehensive reforms over the summer. But then when when the death of of Dante happened, uh, we we really pushed for saying we haven't done enough. Obviously, we haven't done enough. So those are on the table right now as we wrap up our legislative session on May 17th. And we're asking for establishing a sign and release warrant proceedings, uh, because in this case, uh, this gentleman was stopped for having air uh, freshener hanging from his rear view mirror. And, and then they found out that he had a warrant that he never even knew about. So, um, I mean, details will come with, with the case, but certainly knowing that um, those stops and fishing expeditions, actually, um, just today, there was announcements in Minneapolis that black men are stopped and searched 29 times more than white men. In, in the state. So we know we have the data and, and transparency and data is one thing, but what are you going to do with that information? So we are demanding that those traffic stops and that people should not be stopped and searched, obviously, but stopped for minor infractions that they can be easily sent a, a, a mail receipt or something that doesn't have to have those interactions that end up in, in this case and in, in costing someone's life. So those are some of the things we're looking for. Um, we, but it's it's a hyper political environment uh, nationally and here as well in Minnesota. Uh, we've been trying to even have um, language to prohibit law enforcement affiliation with white supremacy groups, and that has been failed on on votes on the floor in the Senate. So, uh, it, so that's kind of the environment we're in. That this is so political that we can't agree to do some basic reforms to keep people safe. Yeah. Well, and so do you just to follow up real fast? Did you, do you are you optimistic that some of that will get done next week, or do you think that most likely some of that gets pushed off till next session? I think some of it can get done this week. We we just uh, the House just sent uh, an offer to the Senate in terms of those different types of of items that we like to see limiting certain traffic stops for equipment violations, which I mentioned. The post board, which is the entity that oversees law enforcement. Uh, having uh, modifications to their misconduct database doesn't necessarily share so much with the public. We also are really pushing for civilian oversight committees and, and, and councils so so the public is more engaged in the policing that they want to see. In my opinion, you know, there's been this notion of defunding the police that came from Minnesota, but it really is about holding police accountable. So we know that it requires resources. Those resources should be the resources the community wants to see. I represent a very affluent district and I border Minneapolis and I actually have my small business in Minneapolis off of Lake Street, which is one of the areas that that had the riots happening when George Floyd was killed and, and murdered. But, you know, we want to make sure that everyone's safe, that the perception that Minnesota is not a safe place that needs to, to be dealt with. Right. We can't the perception. People say it's reality. Uh, in this case, we have an opportunity to enhance what we have and and really 
restore the public trust in not just the police, but in institutions and the government, because that is really lacking right now in politics. And I think it's our duty. Some people say, don't let a crisis go to waste. I can't remember who that was, um, who that, who that leader was that, but, um, this is certainly a crossroads road to where Minnesota needs to, to choose where it wants to, to be. Do we want to be a leader because everyone's watching or do, are we going to lose this moment and, and do nothing? And I don't think we can afford to do nothing for the businesses that are located here in Minneapolis. You go downtown, it's all boarded up or it was up until the, the, the trial. We still know that there's the trial is going to continue in terms of appeals. And, and now we have the Dante Wright incident that we also are, 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 you know, are having to confront. And that happened not in Minneapolis, but in Brooklyn Center, which is a, a northern suburb here. And so this is something that we can't avoid, that we have to tackle. And I think at the end of the day, there is enough push from the public, the business community, and the House and the governor to do something this session. Yeah, that's so good to hear. And I love that. Don't let a good crisis go to waste. I mean, I kind of feel like that's where we are on so many things, right? This has been such a unprecedented year and, and obviously police reform and, and equity more generally and some of the underlying racial inequities that have existed in our systems for so far too long. You know, we have this opportunity as we're thinking about getting past COVID, you know, to really address some of those. And I'd love to to shift to that a little bit. Obviously, you mentioned what a year it's been with COVID and you have been, like all legislators, really on the front lines of this and trying to deal with the fallout from how people are feeling in your in your state. I know that you've worked on emergency childcare to help with, with that issue. You also introduced to a bill to establish an emergency community relief grant program for people who are falling through gaps with the unemployment insurance and other things. And, and as you mentioned, you're also an entrepreneur, entrepreneur yourself with a small business, so you know what small businesses are going through. So I guess my first question on this is just, you know, what has it been like trying to legislate during COVID and to try to get people the help they need? Well, it's it's been wearing many hats on overtime. Our Minnesota legislature is a part-time legislature, so typically we're in around January to May. Obviously, with the pandemic, we were on every month to extend emergency powers for the governor to be able to deal with the testing, with with all the uh, um, the supports that we needed to to be ready for for what was coming and what did come. And now we're kind of ramping down. Just yesterday, the governor announced that we're going to be um, phasing out of some of the executive orders and, and restrictions for businesses, which is a good thing. But this has all been in the midst of people with little information, including leaders, because this is we're not epidemiologists, we're not the healthcare experts or the health public health experts. So we've had to rely on a lot of information, but we've had lacking federal support, frankly, for uh, for the beginning of it. And I feel like now we're starting to get more support when it comes to real science. And I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to, st- to say that this is this has been something we've been grappling with. So we've had to take more state in act, more state action. And I'm grateful for the leadership we have in Minnesota. We have some of the best people in, in the business when it comes to things like COVID and, and, and spreads of, of pandemics. So we've, we've had really good leaders in that regard to try to keep families safe, kids safe in school and out of school and, uh, and businesses. So I've been like everyone else and my colleagues helping the community understand you know, what's the government doing to help support? If you're going to lie, if you're going to close us down, we can't open our businesses. Are you going to give us loans? So we were for childcare, for instance, these are small businesses. We know we had a childcare crisis before the pandemic in terms of affordability and even just providers. And we were the first state that to put some, you know, $30 million just to help prop up the system and help those providers to take essential healthcare workers and people who, who needed to be working 
they can't do that if they have young children. I have a four and a five-year-old, so it's been a lot of balancing as well. Those are just examples, but we've done a lot of work with our with unemployment insurance, for instance. Um, Minnesota was has a really great program, and we again one of the first states that were, was able to kick it on high gear and give people the the supports that they needed to to stay afloat. And then um, the eviction moratorium. There's so many things that were put in place early on. I think it was. There's high, a lot of criticism, but at the same time, I think at the end, um, in the future, we'll see that it was good to to have those in place that helped save lives, that helped support families, and, and we're still doing that. So right now, we're going to expect more than $2 billion, I think like $2.5 billion from the federal government for Minnesota. It's one-time money from the American Rescue Plan, but what are we going to do with that? How are we going to continue to support our, our families and businesses so that our economy can grow back stronger? But um, back to the previous subject, we know there's some d- definite racial disparities in every aspect of, of government in Minnesota, and I'm sure that's the case in many other places, that we can't ignore, and not at this time. So if we're going to use funds, how are we going to do that in an equitable fashion? How are we going to support those who are far worse now with the pandemic than they were before? The gaps that we had in education, the gaps that we had in employment, women who have been having to make the tough decisions of having to stay home and during the pandemic and leaving their, the workforce. We've got to make some progress. And and we had some some disparities, systemic disparities and, and racism in, within the system and embedded. We have to tackle them. We can't continue to ignore them. And I think this is an opportunity to use those funds plus our budget as a state to set us up for success in the future. That's so great. And uh, yeah, that perfect segue that I did want to ask you about the American Rescue Plan dollars and and whether or not there is planning underway already and what you think that you might be using those dollars for. Of course, we're also hoping that there might be American jobs plan money and maybe American plan, families plan money. So there's a there does seem to be, to your earlier point, um, finally some um, some real help coming out of Washington for state, states and localities, which is uh, promising. But I think that, um, as I hear you saying, and I've heard others say, I think that the the goal here really is to make sure this money gets used in a way that is transformational and addresses some of these longstanding gaps and inequities and not just, you know, spread around thinly to things that aren't going to, you know, really make those big changes. So how, both kind of how do you think about that when you're thinking about spending this money and, and, and to make sure that the, you get the outcomes you want? And are there particular areas that you you and that you'd like to see or that you're that you know are priorities for your state? So one of the things that you alluded and I mentioned as well was the child care piece. I've been pretty active in that regard. And at first it was state money. Now we have 254 billion, million, excuse me, just for that area. And I've been working with my Republican colleagues on, on particularly how to use those funds to, to, to have the biggest bang for our buck. So we've done that on a part bipartisan level, at least in the Senate, and we're trying to push that forward to the finish line. But that is supporting existing and those that closed. And again, without childcare, the economy is gonna is gonna you know just chug along. We need it to boom. We need to go back to to what it was and and further. And I'm a small business owner, so I understand that you know these small business owners need those supports. PPP loans that you mentioned. I'm I'm a recipient of one. We're trying to make sure that Minnesota doesn't tax at the state level those PPP loans as well, because we understand that that wasn't what was intended, but that we have to conform with the federal government in terms of that tax policy in order to do so. So that's still being negotiated. I think that's going to happen because a lot of those PPP loans went for childcare. Some of them went for restaurants. Some of them went for, you know, all those 
basic smaller mom and pop shops and main street businesses that can't really weather the storm as as, as much as uh, the larger businesses. And some of the larger businesses have done really well in Minnesota, right? We are home to Target. I used to work for them at the corporate level. They've had record profits. So there's some good out of this in terms of the economy, but but a lot of people suffering too, because uh, a lot of people in Minnesota, you know, obviously meatpacking to talk about that. We had uh, outbreaks there at the, earlier in the pandemic. So we want to make sure that when we reopen that we have better safety for employees and for people to go back to work safely. So some of those are going to be things that are going to continue to evolve. But I think Minnesota is a good spot to to make those models for other states as well. Yeah, I love that. And I one more point on the child care because I've heard you talk about it. I, I think it's so important that we're talking about child care as you know, an economic issue is for too long. Childcare was talked about as a women's issue. You know, you talked about your kids. I have my kids. I, I mean, I was shocked when I first had my children and was trying to fi- was trying to figure out childcare with working. That there was really, I mean, it was like you're on your own. Go figure it out. We had to cobble together something like most parents do. And I think to your point, it's, it is an economic issue. This the economy doesn't work if people can't be in the workforce with their children in good quality, you know, safe daycare or you know, education. So I'm just I'm happy to hear you talk about it in that way. My child, my five-year-old's upstairs doing virtual learning right now because his class got quarantined for 14 days because one kid tested positive. And, you know, it's his reality. And and he's, how do we, how do I work while he's there? My husband's on the other floor working. We're, we're making it work, uh, but it's it's difficult and, and certainly challenging. And, and a lot of families are dealing with that and the stress that brings onto it. We haven't even talked about mental health supports that we should be addressing now more than ever because we know there's a big increase in mental health crisis in, in, in our country because of COVID and also because of, of it was already something that wasn't really talked about or addressed. That's right. Absolutely right. Well, the, I'm, I am op- optimistic and I hope you are that with, um, you know, just the, just the, it, it, to your point, you kind of said, said it something like this, you know, it's just been shown, right? It, the, the, the realities were laid bare and there's no kind of shying away from that anymore. We, you know, we kind of knew they were existed before, but COVID just put a spotlight on all these things. And I think as a country, we just have to, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to to build back better, as the president says. So I'm, I'm absolutely in this time. Um, I am too. Good. I'm happy to hear that. I, I do want to ask you about one other thing that's going on in the legislature right now, which is also happening a lot around the country, but it sounds like Minnesota is also a, a place for this, which is the is democracy and democracy reform and assaults on democracy. You, like many states, it sounds like have things going in both directions. You've got some bills that have been proposed that would really limit voting and voter access. You uh, and others have been champions of some other reforms to try to change the system, to try to make it work better, um, in particular, ranked choice voting, which is something that the New Deal has also talked about some. I'd love to kind of hear just about the, you know, what's happening uh, and a little bit for the uh, listeners who don't know about ranked choice voting, it'd be good for them to hear about that too, I think. Sure. And let me start with uh, the voter restriction. When I first ran in 2012, I ran at the same time we had two constitutional amendments on our ballot. One of them was voter ID. The other one was marriage equality. And luckily we, or, or lack thereof, and we defeated both of them. And that was back in 2012. Uh, fast forward to this week, we had another proposal on uh, restricting voters by having this uh, voter ID requirement bill. So we we debated that on Monday on the Senate floor, and uh, it it passed in the Senate because it's Republican controlled. And what we're trying to have the public understand that that 
we have a really good and stable election system in Minnesota. I can speak for Minnesota because I live here. We have a great secretary of state. We have the, the procedures in place to make sure it's safe. And with COVID, there were some changes made to make sure that people were able to access the ballot box, early voting, et cetera. We make it easy for people who are eligible to vote to do this, so to, to participate in democracy. And we encourage that. Um, we still haven't passed restore the vote of felon voting, but we will be able to, hopefully we'll be able to move, make some progress. But, um, with the debate this Monday, it was, it was really two steps back. Instead of allowing people to cast their vote safely when they're eligible, we're, we're, we're adding to this myth that we have fraud in our election system, uh, that, that, that is plagued with fraud. And it's this, this notion of this big lie and, and it, to, to be political for two seconds, we just have to nip it in the bud. I, I think we need to make sure that people trust our institutions, trust that we were elected fairly because, you know, how dare I say that it was a fraudulent election, but I, it, it, it wasn't fraudulent for my election. So let's make sure that people understand that this system is working, that we can make some progress, that we can certainly have all the checks and balances. We still have paper ballots in Minnesota. We can't vote electronically. And and we don't want to do that just yet. There's a lot of flaws with that. So so we are very cautious about that. We were the last state in the country to take the HABA funds that would have meant, meant more safety when it comes to our election process. Again, because we have divided government and some people think that we have bad election outcomes or election procedures in Minnesota. Far from it. I'm a big proponent of, of, of what you mentioned, ranked choice voting, because I think it levels the playing field on many things. It's not about, I think ranked choice voting helps with having anyone be part of the, the electoral process by thinking that really, first of all, if you're running for office, that you don't have to be part of big political parties or big political institutions to run. Anyone can run and have a, a, a fair shake. If you bring your your platform, what you stand for, and people like you, but like maybe you, Debbie, more than me, they can have you as number one and me as number two. It it helps calm down and the, the, the rhetoric in politics because we are looking for that first and second vote just the same way, right? There, each vote counts, and at the end of the day, whoever gets over fifty percent win. So if there's 20 candidates and in the first round, some people are just knocked off because they don't receive enough votes, those votes go to the second person. And, and that's how it kind of works. Kind of thinking about it, picking the flavor of ice cream, your favorite flavor of ice cream, strawberry, vanilla, or chocolate. You know, if, if chocolate's winning and, and vanilla doesn't get enough votes, then vanilla's out until either chocolate or strawberry gets more than 50%. That seems to be where more people have a voice in the outcome of who represents them. And on top of that, the majority actually wins versus sometimes you have elections that, you know, we get 30% and you win or 30 some percent. Minnesota has a high voter turnout. I'm not worried about Minnesota, but it also helps when it comes to funding for campaigns, right? You don't have to be the most well-funded campaign. If you have a good message, that message is going to get you through and hopefully be able to get more access to people and take money, the money factor away from politics. So those are some of the reasons I, I support ranked choice voting. I, I also think, you know, the, the, the notion of, of, of majority rule, you know, majority votes and, and that every vote counts is actually more democratic than not. So the opponents of it, and it actually wasn't a partisan issue. It's starting to become one because maybe we don't like the outcome, but the outcome of having more people voting and engaged and really feeling like their vote is going to be counted even if it's the last, the, the 20th candidate 
on the on the list, I think it actually empowers voters and and we shouldn't be shying away from that. We want to be accountable to the people who send us to elect that, you know, be uh, the representative. So I hope that that eventually goes away and that people really embrace the system and it's not as complicated argue that it is. Uh, it just takes a few kinks. And right now, in the district that I represent, I have two cities that just voted to support it. So at the local level, Edina and Bloomington and Minnetonka, all three of them have all elected to use ranked choice voting. So that is not a, a bad thing. It's actually moving forward. Excuse me, it was just Minnetonka and Bloomington this last election. So it, cities are starting to look at it as another option to really get more civic engagement. And I think that's just a positive thing, especially in this time in, in, in politics. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with you just about the, the general premise of this whole thing is that the fact that we're somehow this has become a partisan issue about who thinks more people should vote, not about the outcome of elections, but that's the bedrock of democracy, right? This is the whole thing seems so just unbelievable to me as a as an American, right, that we're having this conversation. And I, I do also think on ranked choice voting, as you well know, you know, it's just it's, it is to your point about the, some of your local jurisdictions, like New York City is going to do the mayoral, mayoral uh, race coming up. One of New Deal leaders, uh, Shashar Jones in St. Louis, just won her mayor's race in a, a version of ranked choice voting. So I think that it's happening more and more. I, I think people are going to hear more and more about it. I think it's a really interesting possibility. And it saves money. So you don't have to go to a runoff. It just does it in one shot. So it actually saves money. You don't have to have, have a primary. It actually is more efficient. Yeah, inter super interesting. So thanks for talking to me a little bit about that. I do want to ask you one other political question, if I can, just in general, kind of a more of a political landscape, Minnesota. I just think Minnesota is such a fascinating state for many, many reasons. And I have some answers just from there. So maybe I've got a little uh, little uh, <laughs> connection there. But people think of Minnesota, particularly in recent cycles, as a real swing state. But if you look at Minnesota, I think it's voted Democratic every presidential election since 1972, if I did my homework right. But it's, you know, close elections. So I'm just kind of curious, you've got, you know, you you you've You've got it's a pretty white state, as you mentioned earlier, demographically, but you've got farmland and rural areas, you've got the mining areas. So just kind of how do you talk about or think about Minnesota politics and, and you know, kind of where it falls on the red blue scale? I think it's a very deep purple. And I and I and I would argue like it, my district is is moderate. I, I'm the first Democrat ever elected to my Senate seat. And I ran as a pro-business moderate Democrat. I think a Republican couldn't win my district. I think the message, I, I think Minnesota is a very well-educated state in every aspect of it. We have, you have the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, you have great successful businesses, big Fortune 500, I think we have over 20 right now. And so, so it's a very well-educated and electoral system. And I just think the, it depends on the candidate. I mean, you saw Senator Amy Klobuchar, who I supported running for president, and, and she was seen, seen as a moderate. Well, she is a very, 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 very popular senator in Minnesota. She has appeal all over the state. So um, that is who she is. And that is, I think, very representative of what Minnesota is like, uh, of trying to solve problems and, and you know, common sense and, and straightforward and bread and butter issues. So I think the difference is sometimes uh, perceived in, in the metro area. And I, I, I'm in the uh, the western suburbs of, of, of Minneapolis, but the, the core of the city is more democrat, uh, democratic. The, the suburbs are turning that way. They're, they're shifting. When I ran, I said it was the first one elected Democrat. I think it's more socially more liberal and more fiscally more conservative. And I think you can see that across the state and, it, and it's changing a little bit in terms of uh, the rural, rural Minnesota and, and, and how they're trying to make this rural metro divide. But the suburban side of Minnesota is certainly more purple. So I think overall, it kind of balances it, it, it itself out. 
And, and you have to make sure that you know how to talk ag, right? And you also know how to talk city issues. So it's a very interesting place, but uh, very, very robust and very well educated overall and has great schools. We've known, we've, we've seen it, we've known that, but we also have big disparities in those schools. So we have to work on that issue and going back to our first conversation. But overall, I think people, have, you know, look at Minnesota. It's great education, great schools great place to live, great quality of life, but we have the racial issues that we cannot ignore and they're right staring at us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this this podcast is called An Honorable Profession in part because we want to make the case or make the, you know, just let people hear from elected officials. Um, I'm such a fan of people who put themselves out there to run for office and to be uh, on the front lines. It's not an easy thing to do. It is an honorable profession. Uh, and just kind of, you know, let people hear and see their elected officials as, as human, you know, and what brought them there. So I'd love to just talk for a minute about what your own journey. And you mentioned already that you were, you grew up in Puerto Rico, came to Minnesota for graduate school and law school. But before you left Puerto Rico, I know that you were really involved in the Girl Scouts and 4-H. And uh, I'm wondering just from a young age, if that's some of those experiences. And you, and I want to know what the silver award is, by the way. It's the highest honor. I think you, you earned it. Second so, highest. I never did gold, but you know. <laughs> I don't, I didn't know what the, what's still the, bugs me. Okay. <laughs> still time. <laughs> I don't know if there's an age limit, but you know, did some of those experiences in those organizations help put you on a path to kind of that community engagement or yeah. Absolutely. And I was one of three girls, my two younger and older sisters uh, and I were all Girl Scouts. So we had plenty of Girl Scout cookies every cookie season to sell. So that's the first time of like learning to door knock because you're selling cookies, right? Who knew? But very good experience. And and then 4-H, I, I traveled internationally to Costa Rica through the 4-H program. And it, it was just fascinating to me. And I went to Washington, D.C. through 4-H. And I think that's what really kind of opened up my eyes in politics. It's like, I want to be part of government in some way, shape or form. Never thought about elected office, but really wanted to pursue a public policy degree and then a law degree to be ready for that. Because in Puerto Rico, politics is like the national sport, I joke. It is really the underpinning of anything done there, how everything is run. And it's the biggest employer in the island. So understanding that was where I thought I would be able to bring value. But then I came to Minnesota and like many, you kind of get, you grow into it. You get stuck here, but in a way that um, I, I just fell in love, literally and, 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 and figuratively with Minnesota and my husband's from Little Falls, small town in Morrison County, west from the cities and um, very, very conservative area. And we just uh, went to grad school together. And then I stayed here for law school and, and continued on. I was very active in my community when I first moved here on local boards and and then when I was done with law school, after I did my, my, my practicum at the Hennepin County Public Defender's Office, I ended up in, in, in uh, Target doing real estate and doing those deals and then moved on to government affairs. And that's where I think I really got the bug, if you will, of being uh, an advocate for, in this case, a business on the local, state and federal level and was able to, to lobby on their behalf as well. And and then someone thought that I, I should run for office in the district, and I thought they were crazy. And she happened to be a woman who was the first Latina elected uh, senator in Minnesota. And I thought she was crazy, but because I was not involved in the political Republican Democratic environment, I was very neutral, and and I wasn't raised that way. But um, I, I I convinced my husband. He he said he thought he I needed to get it out of my system, so I, I ran and I went to the precinct caucus and introduced myself, and that was the. Everybody said, you just have to introduce yourself. 
But no, they, they quickly start, started talking about issue, the castle doctrine and so and you know, many um, very in-depth policy issues. And I door knocked the heck out of the district and ended up winning to a very long time Minnesotan who was raised in the district and his father had a pool in his name. He actually ended up being the Republican chair for the, for the state after that. But um, it, he was a formidable candidate. And I think by just the simple hard work of doing and being kind of the underdog and doing the work behind the scenes and quietly, uh, I ended up in a year that we had two constitutional amendments that the electorate really did come out strong against those amendments and for a lot of Democrats. So I was part of that, if you call a wave, but I did the work. So then um, fast forward now, I'm in the state leadership position as a minority assistant minority leader in the Senate. And this is my ninth year in the legislature. And it's been fascinating. When I first start, started there, I thought Minnesota politics was in good hands and we were in good shape regardless of party. Now I worry. And I'm only 40. And now I worry. And I've only been there nine years, but I've seen in the last five years a radical change of how politics has been evolving. And I, I don't like it. I, I, I think we have to go back to let's make politics boring again. <laughs> when you actually think there's good government, good people, yes, you're going to disagree, but you don't have to be disagreeable. It's been so much left, right. And, and people like me in the center are, are having a harder time um, getting things done because you can't, you never can please anybody, everybody, but, but it's really um, very polarized. So it's, it's a challenge. You know, we've seen people protest in front of legislators homes with weapons. And I mean, that's real. And, and not just for politicians, but anyone who's involved in government with, you know, police or judges, and, and that has to change, we have to really, again, back to my earlier comment of, of building trust and restoring trust in institutions and in government, uh, we have a, a long ways to go um, to get out of this chapter, because I think this is a dark chapter in that. And, and it's going to take people, you know, to tone down the rhetoric and to run for office, maybe rancho choice voting might help. I think it would. And also every leader, not just elected leaders in business, leaders in nonprofit, leaders in, in, in the clergy to really call for peace and, and, and just uh, civility, right? Simple, simple civility. Yeah, and I completely agree. And I mean, obviously what you said mirrors what we're seeing on the national level and everywhere around the country with, you know, January 6th and just, you know, just this, it really feels like there, there are, there's people have feel like there's a license to, you know, just to completely dismiss another side's thinking about, you know, anything, right. Or, you know, even just a can't agree on the facts. And I'm a proud centrist as well, proud, proud, you know, pragmatic progressive, if you will, somebody who wants to build consensus. I'm just, you know, you talked a little bit about what it's going to take, but, you know, I, I do believe in my heart of hearts that, that, that that's where most people are. I still believe that. I think that the, you know, people on either side can be, you know, be loud sometimes. But I think that there's a, a real desire for most Americans to come together and and and, and that they we know that, the, that there's more, to, you know, that unites us than divides us, right? To say that, you know, that use that saying, but I guess just, you know, what gives you optimism? Or does do you have some optimism you kind of you hinted that you did that we can get there? And, and you know, are there some concrete steps you, you hope to see uh, in Minnesota to, to change to change things? Absolutely. I think we've gone through worse chapters in our history, uh, American history, that is, that, that we will persevere, we will come out of this. But I, I think it's going to take people to step up to the moment, right? People who, who I remember when I decided to run for office, I thought the Tea Party was too, too radical. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look, fast forward to now, 
that's what moved me to run. I said, I'm not going to complain about something if I'm not going to do something about it. So whether it's you running or helping someone who is or supporting a cause that's helping to bring, you know, the, the, the tone down in politics. I think it's, it's all of us. It's talking to your neighbors. We've been through a really rough year with COVID and we're not out of the woods yet because this is a ecosystem. We have other countries that, you know, we're part of this world and planet. So it's going to take people to, to talk to their neighbors, to start looking at them in the eye and to, to, to respect each other know that there's a place for accountability and policing, but that doesn't mean every police officer is, is a bad actor. My, my father and my father-in-law were both law enforcement officers at one point in their careers. And, you know, there's really good people, but there's people who want to abuse power as much as any other profession. And we have to hold those people accountable. And I think it's going to take all of us calling them out. That lady who, the young lady who took the video of George Floyd, I mean, she was part of that accountability and that took courage. And we need people to step up and, and be just as courageous and call out injustice and do something about it and not just um, act like it's not happening or or just because I think it just festers, right? If we don't take action, I think that's why in Minnesota, we have this moment where we can't let it fester. We have to address it and we can actually be a great example of how to overcome. Yeah. Well, Melissa, I'm so happy to have had the chance to get to talk to you today. It's been so, you know, just inspiring, to be honest. And uh, and congratulations on the successes of this legislative session. I wish you well for the last, last uh, you were telling me, we hope. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know, you were talking about what's going to happen next week with having to have lunch, dinner and snacks packed because it's going to be a busy week. But I wish you the best of luck in the at the end of the legislative session. Thank you. I think it's an important role and I'm glad I'm there and I, I will do the best I can to represent not just my district, but this moment in our state and our, our country. And uh, I look forward to having a positive outcome and a positive future. Great. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.